Well, last week we started a new series, a new study called Elijah, God's Troublemaker for Troubled Times. And I just want to take a moment and say that if you missed last week's study, it's an introductory study, and I recommend that you take some time to listen to that. It really helps to understand, sets the stage and lays the foundation for so much of what we're going to be talking about. But last week what we talked about was really based on 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, we're not going to focus on that verse tonight, but I do want to start by reading that along with several verses following. So I'm going to read from 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite was one of the inhabitants of Gilead, excuse, who was one of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, who's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom before, I stand, before whom I stand, there will not be dew or rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, to, to Elijah that is, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide by the Kareth brook, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord's, for he went and lived by the Kareth brook, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. After some time, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The, Lord of the, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, there, uh, which belongs to Sidon, and, I, and live there. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he got up and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, a widow, widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and said, Please get a small cup of water for me to drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, but only a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a jar. I am gathering two sticks that I can go in and make it, make it for me and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make a little cake for me first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for your son and you. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal will not run out, nor will the jar of oil empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. She went and did what Elijah told her to do, and she, uh, he and her household ate many days. The barrel of meal did not run out, nor did the jar of oil empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, if you just leave that passage for a moment and turn uh, oh, uh, just two chapters over to chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 9. He came to a cave and camped there, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, Lord, uh, uh, Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets by the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He said, Go and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind split the mountains and, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake came, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire came, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood in the entrance to the cave. And a voice came to him and said, why are you here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, Lord of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek 
to take my life. The Lord said to him, Go, return on the road through the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael to be king over Aram. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, uh, of Abel uh, Mahola, to be prophet in your place. He who escapes the sword of Hazael will be killed by Jehu. And he who escapes the sword of Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Still, I have preserved 7,000 men in Israel for myself, all of of whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. That's a lengthy passage of scripture, and we're really not even going to talk about the, the details of the stories that are related there, but, but I want to talk a little bit about today about Elijah the man, the man behind the prophet and the work what God was doing in his life. You know, many, many years ago, there was a young Methodist pra- pastor in his first church, very young man, and he invited an older pastor to come preach a revival in his service, and that, that older pastor preached in, in the Sunday morning service, and then they went back to the parsonage. They ate lunch there in that young pastor's house, and, and then the older pastor retired to the room that they had provided for him in, the, in that house to, to try to get some rest. And the, the young pastor was, the, the plan was for him to awaken the older pastor at the appointed time so he could get ready for the evening service. Well, when the time came, the young pastor went to that room, and he just slowly opened the door a little bit without, without knocking, just assuming that the man was asleep and not wanting to startle him. He just pushed the door open just a little bit to see if the older man was sleeping and he was just going to gently tap him to wake him up. However, as he pushed the door open a little, the older pastor wasn't in bed at all. He was kneeling beside the bed and the now, the young pastor couldn't hear a word that he was saying, but he, he, he just caught a, a brief fleeting glimpse of that man in prayer. And he had, his, he had his fist to the side of his head and he was just rocking back and forth and hitting the sides of his head with his fist like this and just, just moaning. And that scene just so thoroughly engaged this young pastor and so thoroughly amazed him as a young preacher that, that he absolutely just didn't know what to make of it. So he just quietly uh, pulled the door closed and he never mentioned it to the older pastor. Well, several years later, that young pastor was filled with the Holy Spirit and he went into evangelism and he preached at a, at a church in Georgia. It was a large downtown church, a very sophisticated, wealthy congregation. And he preached in the Sunday morning service and, and it was just horrible. It was just dead. He, he didn't know if he was unanointed or what he didn't know if what was wrong but it was horrible he 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 said it it seemed as if it's if nothing he said in that service had any life at all it's just a dreadful experience and the the i mean the people of the church just stared at him like frogs were jumping out of his mouth or something the whole experience was just devastating to him and he went back to the motel that the church had provided for him and and uh, he, he went back there to try to get some rest that afternoon to get ready for the evening service. And as he lay down on that bed, he, he lay there and, and that scene, that the congregation just staring at him blankly, just kept running before his eyes. And he eventually, he just rolled out of bed and fell on his knees and began literally crying out to the Lord. He couldn't even find words to say, but the, the inner passion of his soul was, Oh God, do something! What's wrong with me? What have, I, what have I done? Maybe I preached the wrong thing. And he was just literally moaning on the floor. And all of a sudden, the picture of that man from nearly a dozen years earlier came right into his mind. 
It was as if the Lord said to him, now let me explain that moment to you. And he suddenly realized after nearly a dozen years in ministry that he had never in his youth even considered the story that is behind every act of public ministry. I'm sure that many of you at different times in your life have you've lived through that moment where you where you sit through some excruciatingly boring sermon and then you think to yourself, this is dead. Can't this guy do any better than that? Well, I know that's horrible for you on those days, but let me let me tell you what's horrible earth. That's not a word, but I like to make things up once in a while. What's even worse is to, is to preach that message and go back into your study after it's all over and then fall down on your face and cry out, Oh God, I'm, I'm going to kill this church. I'm just going to ruin it. It's a horrible experience. And I think that people who have not been through it don't understand the, the wrestling match that goes on in the life and mind and experience of the person who's trying to do public ministry in any way, at least if he's genuine and authentic. Now, if he's a charlatan, he doesn't struggle at all. However, if his heart is right, then he struggles with his failures and with his successes. And now here, in this passage of Scripture, we see a really a beautiful, poignant portrait of the prophet behind the scenes. It's, it's really filled with with a pathos that's extremely touching to me, and, and, and I should think to everyone, we must remember that in every instance of ministry, whether you're preaching or you're giving your testimony to your next-door neighbor or you're sharing at a conference somewhere or, or at a retreat somewhere or you're witnessing to a friend, that in every moment of ministry, God is not only dealing through you, but He is dealing to you. He's dealing not only through you, but he's dealing with you. He's ministering to you. So let's look at back at, 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 at verse 2 of chapter 17. I want to read it again. It says, the word of the Lord came to him saying, go from here and turn eastward and hide by the Kareth brook, which is east of the Jordan. Now we're going to talk about it in a moment. Just think what just happened. He just sent him to speak boldly to the king in his throne room, and now he's immediately telling him, go hide. Verse 4, you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the Kareth brook, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, What's happening here? Well, there's some, several things. I'm going to give you probably about three of them tonight. But God is, first of all, God is teaching Elijah the kind of humble faith that depends constantly on the Lord. You know, I, I believe that there's something in the mind of God that, that wants to engineer those of us who want to serve him and want to follow him, whether it's laymen or clergy or evangelists or pastors or missionaries or carpenters or plumbers or electrician. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're wanting to follow God and wanting to live for him and be used by him, God wants to maneuver us right out to the point where we have to lean on him. And in this story, you can see this, that it, listen, if, if God caused the ravens twice a day to bring him meat, then God could have done anything. God could have done anything, even, even through Jesus. I mean, you think about how God can miraculously provide. He told Peter to go catch a fish and there would be some cash in the fish's mouth to pay the temple tax. 
See, God has a vast multiplicity of ways that he can meet our needs. However, I believe he could have, he could have just done something simple. He could have said, listen, I'm going to hide you from the eyes of King Ahab. I'm going to, I'm going to just make food miraculously appear. You just go sit and take it easy and lounge in a a nice comfy apartment somewhere in the city. But that's not what he did. Uh, But, but I believe he wanted to push Elijah, the man, not, not just Elijah, the prophet, but Elijah, the man right out to the point where he was absolutely dependent on God. Then he says in verse 4, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I have commanded the ravens. In other words, he wants them to understand that in their, there, right there in the moment of your, of your deepest need where, where I have brought you to the precipice of disaster, my word goes ahead of you. I have commanded my word into the situation already and I will provide for your need. If you look ahead to verse 9, you'll see that very same phrase again. He said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. See, the, the same God who brings us to a point of absolute dependence on Him is the same God that when we depend on Him, we'll provide. I have commanded. God, God goes ahead of us into the crisis moment. He says, I have commanded already, trust me. Now I want you to notice this, because this is significant to me. When we receive the providence then uh, of God, then God uh, refuses to allow us to camp on the doorstep of that experience. So, He hears from God. He moves Elijah to the moment of depending upon God for the courage to announce the word of the Lord to the king. And from there, he leads him into the desert place at the brook Kareth. And he provides for him with the ravens and with the water. And then when the water dries up, he sends him to the widow's house. He's, He's spoken into that situation already. And he's caused the widow to be at exactly the right place at exactly the right time. And he's going to work a miracle in and through her for Elijah. And he's going to work a miracle in and through him for her. We didn't read the rest of chapter 17 where the widow's son died and Elijah was used by God to raise him from the dead. There were a lot of things that were going to take place in that moment. And from then, from there... He moves on to to camp in a cave in the middle of nowhere. He is constantly leading Elijah from one situation of dependence and blessing to another. Dependence and blessing. Dependence, blessing. Dependence, blessing. Now here's the balance. Listen to this. And this is extremely important. If we camp and we cling to the crisis in panic and fear then God cannot lead us through it to the moment of blessing. And that sounds odd to us, but you know, there there are people, and maybe you know some like this, that they're not happy unless they're in the middle of a crisis. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, Anybody know what I'm talking about? People that are not happy unless they have something to complain about. Well, we can't cling to that. We, if, we, if we cling to the problem, if we hold on to that and say, but God this, God this, then he can never lead us through it to the moment of blessing. However, on the flip side, if we cling to the blessing and we refuse the next moment of crisis, then God cannot lead us us through that into character. See, God leads us 
through crisis into blessing, but he also leads us through crisis into character. You know, Elijah, he might have sat there at the brook Kareth and he, he, he could have said, no, 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 I'm not moving from here. God, I, I want to be provided for just like this every time. This is how God works. When you have a need, he sends ravens with meat and bread and you drink from the brook. I want to stay here because this is how God works. You know, there's a New Testament expression of this truth. Paul said in Philippians 4.12, He said, I know how to be a base. He said, I know how to have nothing. I know how to live with nothing. And I know how to keep my soul intact in that moment. I can live through that without going nuts and without losing my faith. I know how to go through the experience of uh, uh, being brought down to absolute humility where I have to depend on God even for the next breath I breathe. I know how to do that. And he went on and he said, I also know how to abound. He he said, I've slept in the houses of kings. I've been provided for by the best businessmen in the Middle East. He said, and I also know how to do that without losing my soul or losing my integrity. And he finishes by saying, everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He said, "I, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Well, what's the key? The key is, whether in crisis or prosperity, whether in need or in abundance, to have the spirit of absolute humility and dependence upon God. When I have nothing, I depend on God to get me through having nothing. And when I have more than I need, then I must depend upon God to keep me from losing my soul to the desire and the greed that the human flesh, the human heart has. And you do not depend upon God less in one experience than you do in the other. Now, the second thing he's teaching Elijah, God is teaching Elijah that he must trust God and not the plan. I sort of alluded to this a moment ago. It'd be easy for him to look and say, oh, well, when you're in need, you go out in the wilderness, God sends ravens to be able to supply your need. This is the plan of God. This is how it works. Uh, you know, whenever we think we've figured out the plan of God, may, maybe I have a, uh, an odd notion of the Holy Spirit, and, and I, I hope you don't think this is sacrilegious. I say it a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, I think that sometimes there's, there's, that God just has a little bit of an ornery streak, you know, where he just, he just waits for you to think that you have it all figured out. So, so when you say, oh, I, now I understand... Now I get it. You, you can almost hear God in that moment lean back in his chair and prop his feet up on the desk and say, oh, you have it, have you? You understand my work. So we say, well, I understand it. Now I get it. I see what you're doing. Now it's clear to me. And then God in that moment so often says, okay, surprise. Well, Elijah, he could have stood there in that throne room of the king in the boldness of the lion of the tribe of Judah and said, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And he could have stood right there and said, I am not afraid of anything. And then the voice of the Lord comes to him and says, now I want you to run into the wilderness. Go flee, flee into the wilderness. Now he could have clung to the experience of that moment And he said, no, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm staying right here. But if he had, he would have missed the plan of God at the brook Kareth. At the brook Kareth, he was fed by the ravens and he drank water from the brook. 
He could have clung to the experience of supernatural provision out there alone in the wilderness. And he, but if he had, he would have missed the experience of the miracles that took place in the house of the widow of Zarephath. And he could have clung to that and missed the next experience. The, the point is, we must not trust the plan, at least as we perceive it to be. We must trust God. Now, the, the thing that, that we must remember in trusting God and, and not the plan is that when we try to trust God, we need to remember God does not always make sense to us. Anybody found that to be true? You ever discovered that in your life? I mean, listen, what sense does it make for God to send Elijah out to the brook Kareth and then dry up the brook Kareth? Don't you think God could have kept the water flowing even though there hadn't been any rain in the land? I mean, he's the one who invented water. He could have made some uh, flow down that brook for him. So what sense does it make for that? And, and see, here's the, the thing. That, this brings us to a very, very difficult question. And the question is this. Does God ever call people into moments of ministry that are doomed you know, I once heard someone say, God will never call you into something that's going to flop. And, and I felt at the time that I heard it, there was just something wrong with that. But I just could not put my finger on what was off. Something was just off. But I can tell you that now, after more than three decades of ministry, I know exactly what is wrong with that. <laughs> Reality. <laughs> that's what's wrong with it. You know, it's, it's good in theory. But the problem is that sometimes God calls us into acts of ministry that are going to get our heads cut off. I mean, was John the Baptist in or out of the will of God when he got his head cut off in in Herod's dungeon? Was Jesus in or out of the will of God when he was nailed to the cross? Was Paul the apostle in or or out of the will of God when he was shipwrecked and and then he climbed up on the beach and then was bitten by a snake trying to build a fire? I mean, you think about that. You just just have to figure on it in the moment like that. You're just thinking, this is a bad day shipwrecked you finally make it up on the, onto the shore and, and and you and you're building a fire and and the snake comes out of the wood and bites you a poisonous snake that everybody says oh he's gonna die now i mean i don't know about you but i, I wonder if if it had been me if i wouldn't have said to myself at that moment god must really be opposed to me god must be working against me in this moment instead he did what Terry Teckle said uh, when he was talking about this story. He, he said that he was the first person to ever shake and bake because the Bible says he shook that snake off into the fire. But he shook the snake off into the fire and he went on because his faith was fixed on the character and nature of God instead of being fixed on what he believed to be the plan. Instead of fixing his faith on what he thought, how, how, how he had figured that it was going to work out. See, if you get it in your mind how the plan is going to work, if you get it in your mind and say, oh, this is how God works and this is what he's going to do, and you trust that plan that you have, you have concocted in your own mind instead of trusting in God, what's going to happen is that you will begin to trust what you perceive to be the blueprint instead of trusting the designer. You'll trust the plan instead of trusting God. You know, sometimes God will call you into an act or a, a work of public ministry that He's, he's going to bless and he's going to prosper and he's going to anoint and it's going to just take off like gangbusters and, and everything you touch is just going to turn gold. 
But there are other times when God is going to call you to a certain field that's going to be hard to plow and hard to plant. And you're going to see no harvest and you're, you're going to see no crop and you're going to see no results. And what God is calling you into in that situation may have nothing to do with what you are doing for anybody else in your ministry. It may have everything to do with the cultivation of your own character. There by the brook Kareth, when Elijah stared into that empty creek bed and said, Lord, you, you brought me out here. <laughs> you, you got a plan? Lord, Lord, you brought me out here. You told me to come and drink from the stream and then you dry up the stream. And God said, well, go to Zarephath. Oh, oh, okay, you got another river there? No, no, I have a widow there. The the point I want to make is this. Don't get caught up in these cozy little tidy theories that say, if you're following God, nothing will ever go wrong. Because the reality is sometimes when you're following God, it will take you right straight into the wilderness. However, on the other side of the wilderness... There will be an an oasis. You know, I heard about a man named Murray Altman. He was a man who had a remarkable communications technique. No matter what he would say, didn't matter what the conversation was, no matter what he would say, he always followed up with the phrase, on the other hand. And, And you know, I see a lot of that in throughout scripture. If God leads you into the desert, he will provide for you while you're there. On the other hand, He'll also finally lead you into an uh, an oasis. On the other hand, if he dries up the oasis, the oasis will very soon look like a desert. On the other hand, God may lead you to another oasis. On the other hand, he may lead you from that oasis to a big city where he's going to give you a great prosperous work and ministry or business or life there. On the other hand, Job also served him. On the other hand, when Job lived through the Job experience, Job was blessed, blessed again. On the other hand, don't tempt God by demanding prosperity. On the other hand, trust God that he knows what he's doing and that he will prosper his children in the way that he knows is best for them. On the other hand, believe in the God of miracles, not the miracles of God. Now, in all these things, he's not only dealing with us through, through this teaching. I, I, want you to, I want you to get in touch with the man, Elijah, the person, Elijah. Feel what he feels for just a moment, will you? Can you, can you walk a little a ways in his sandals? You, you stand and you look right into the eye of, of the king and you announce the word of God and then it comes true. And just as the entire country suffers for it, no rain means famine, so you suffer for it also. Until you're alone in a canyon in the middle of the Judean wilderness with no food, and there's a price on your head. Just feel what he feels. Remember that. And as you feel that, remember that the setbacks in life and ministry are really opportunities for God's miraculous grace to be at work in your life. Now, the next thing God is teaching him is this. In following God, remain flexible and sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice two things. First of all, let me ask you this question and somebody answer this. What does, and this is not a trick question, so you don't, don't hesitate and say, I don't want to be embarrassed. What does God use to feed Elijah at the brook Kareth? Ravens. Very good. Very good. Now, what is the one great characteristic about ravens according to the law of Moses? They are what? 
They are unclean. Ravens are unclean birds. Now, now I want to just say, share this with you at this point, point in time with you. The, the word raven here, uh, where it says that Elijah was fed by ravens, uh, that word is, is much fought over in circles where theologians are looking for things over which to fight. Uh, the word has a very great similarity to the word for merchant. And the words raven and merchant in Hebrew are very similar. And many Bible scholars say that this doesn't mean ravens, but it means merchants. And they say that these merchants moved with their caravans out across the desert and things would fall off the camels, food and other supplies and things like that. And then Elijah would go up behind the, the, them and scavenge behind the caravans. And they say it doesn't mean ravens birds, it means ravens merchants. Now, the problem I have with that is it says ravens. <laughs> it doesn't say merchants. It says ravens. Furthermore, uh, I'll say this. Suppose it did say merchants. Because the, the people who say that are, are, uh, are commentators who don't believe that in the real miraculous power of God. And they say, oh, it wasn't really a miracle of birds. It was this. But, but I'll just say this. Let's just say it was merchants. And I'll say this. That does not threaten my faith at all. You know, there was a, a very elderly pastor in Georgia who told a story that happened during the Great Depression. The man was pastoring his first church at, at the very height of the, of the Great Depression. And he and his wife were literally starving. They had no food. And he, he said that they were sitting on the front porch of their little parsonage in the mountains of North Georgia. And, and as they were sitting there, this big old truck came around the corner that was right in front of their house. And a, and a crate full of live chickens fell off the truck right into his front yard. He said, he said that it was a crisis of moral character. He was so afraid that he was going to kill and eat those chickens in his hunger that he, he took the chickens and put them in a bedroom in his house to get them out of his sight. And uh, he tried to reach the company that owned the chickens. He finally got in touch with them. And, and, and they said, uh, well, he said to them, please send somebody to pick up these chickens uh, they're not ours, but they fell off their truck. Send somebody out to get these chickens. And they said, no, no, it's going to cost us more to get a truck up there to pick the chickens up than the chickens are worth. You can have the chickens. And those chickens literally fed them for months, not just by eating the chickens, but from the eggs that they, that they, uh, that they laid on all kinds of things. And, and, and those chickens literally for them, we sometimes use that word literally, and we don't really mean literally, but in this case, literally those chickens were a lifesaver for them. And uh, that old man, he told that story and he said, I don't know what it's like to be fed by ravens, but I do know what it's like to be fed by chickens. And I love that story, but here's the thing. Whether the chickens fall off of a truck or the ravens bring them in their beak, what is that to me? Why should I care? The point of the story is that God has miraculous ways to use the most natural things in the world. Yeah, that truck going around that curve for those chickens to fly off at exactly the right moment and land in the, in the yard of that man, that was the supernatural act of God. The chickens were normal. The crate was normal. The truck was normal. Here, these, these ravens, they were not supernatural ravens. They were, they were just regular old natural ravens. And what a wonderful miracle to be sitting by the brook Kareth, this deep, lonely gorge, a little trickle of water, just a finger of water flowing through that deep gorge. It sort of looks like a miniature Grand Canyon and those ravens would fly down into that gorge and they would drop the meat on the stones and Elijah uh, would make a fire and cook that raw meat. 
Well, I just tell you, I don't have any trouble uh, believing that God could provide that way. And I don't have any trouble if God provided by knocking things off of a camel caravan for, for Elijah to go out and pick up. I don't have any, just don't have any trouble with that either. If God did that, that was his miraculous way of providing through natural means. Now, the problem with, with this whole discussion is, it says, like, ravens. And, and so I, I, don't, I don't like playing games with scriptures. But anyway, so God feeds Elijah. Not only with animals, but with birds. And not only with birds, but with unclean birds. So now he sends him from there to a widow at Zarephath. And that widow is from, from where? Anybody remember? She's from Sidon. Now let me see who remembers from last week. Who else is from Sidon? Anybody remember? Jezebel. Jezebel is from Sidon. She was a princess of Sidon. And, and so uh, now, now again, you have to get inside the mind of Elijah. God says, I'm going to send you out into the wilderness and I've commanded ravens to feed you. And I can't help but wonder if Elijah, this good Jewish boy, uh, uh, didn't say to God, couldn't, couldn't, instead of ravens, God, couldn't you make it turtle doves? I mean, does it have to be those nasty old ravens, those unclean birds? No, ravens. So every day when Elijah takes the meat out of the beak of that raven, he just shivers a little bit, you know, just cringes. Got cooked that really good. And God finally says, Elijah, you're not getting it. Let let me show you what I'm saying. The brook is going to dry up and the ravens will come no more. Oh, oh, good. That mean I can go back to town? Yes. Oh, to, to Jerusalem? No, to Sidon, which is a Gentile town. And, and there's a widow. Oh, 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 there's a Jewish lady living out in that town? No, no, she's a widow of Zarephath. She's a pagan, heathen Gentile, and she's going to provide for you. And he said, you're going to eat from, from her hand just as you ate from the raven's beaks. In other words, God is saying to him, I can use you to bring down a Sidonian uh, princess named Jezebel, and I can use up a, uh, raise up another Sidonian woman to bring you up is God mighty or what when you read this passage and understand what's going on here I it's for me at least it sort of rings a bell and the passage makes me think of Peter in the book of Acts when God said uh, arise Peter kill and eat and and Peter said no Lord I've never eaten anything that's unclean and God says don't ever call anything unclean ravens Gentiles anything that I've cleansed and, and Peter sees that vision three times and three times Peter's response is the same and then he awakes from the vision and, and as he awakes from the vision standing at the door are three ravens three Gentiles. And they're saying, come over to, to Caesarea and teach our master Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the Gentile, the things of the gospel. And then God uses Peter there in Caesarea in a great burst of, of miracle power. Again, it is, it is this issue of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, being open, being yielded, asking for creativity, asking God for fresh insight. You know, don't, don't do the same thing the same way every day, year after year after year after year until you squeeze God out and begin to trust only in the plan that you think he's using. However, that, that sensitivity, I'll tell you this, that sensitivity to God will often lead you into things that are highly unorthodox, like, like eating meat brought to you by ravens, unclean birds. 
It may sometimes lead you into a way of doing things or ways of seeing things or ways of understanding things that are tremendously unconventional to take the food from an unclean raven, to, to receive food from, and stay in the house of a Gentile widow, to preach the gospel in the house of Gentiles and see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I think that so many ministries lose the life that what God wants to give them because they want God to, to play by their rules, to do it the way they like it, to do it the way they want it done. And God just doesn't usually play by our rules. Dr. Mark Rutland told a story one time about a revival service, a series of services he was holding at a small Methodist church many, many years ago. And, and as he, there was a college nearby and a bunch of college kids from, from that nearby college came to the service one night and, and he was preaching that night about healing. One of the young men from that college uh, that was in attendance that night had dislocated his shoulder that afternoon in a game of, of touch football and his arm was in a sling and it was all like taped down to keep it immobile and that sort of thing. And, and in the middle of the teaching on healing, all of a sudden this, this, this boy just, just yelled out at the top of his lungs right in the middle of the service. He just said, oh my goodness. And he, and he, just, he just took that tape and ripped it off and he, and he put his hand up in the air and he said, I'm healed. And that, that boy just, he just jumped up and, and began to run around that church and he was grabbing people and shaking them saying, uh, and saying, do you understand? You understand what the pain is? God, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed. And those precious Methodist people, they had their eyes wide open and just feeling a little embarrassed about what's going on. Even Dr. Rutland, who was, who was spirit-filled, he, uh, he said he felt a little uncomfortable that moment. He, he wanted the kid to be healed, but he just wanted him to, to be nice. And the kid was really excited. He was just thrilled. He was just bouncing off the walls. And, and I want to learn that lesson and keep that lesson in my mind that sometimes God may just do unique things in unique ways. And I have to be open to that and say, God can do, he can choose to feed by ravens if he wants to. God, God can do that. It doesn't mean, now I'll say this, because there's a danger out there, somebody's going to misinterpret what I'm saying, and then they're going to say, "Oh, well, God can do it any way He wants." So I'll just, I'll just, let, you know, uh, just let anything go. I'm not saying that it means that you have to be so open-minded that your brains fall out. You know, it, it it does mean that you need to be sensitive to God changing direction. Once to the palace of Ahab, once to the brook Kareth, once to the widow, once to blessing, once to hardship, but to be sensitive. To what God is doing all the time. Now, finally, and in closing, what, what else is God saying to Elijah the man? Well, God is saying to him, and this is, this is a huge lesson for us. I am preparing you in the silence of these lonely desert experiences for the ministry to come. Because there was much greater ministry to come. Loneliness in the desert and then living in the back room of some widow's house in a Gentile city where he's living off of bread and oil. Now, I, I wonder, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I, I'm, not, I'm selling the old prophet short. Maybe I, I need to cut him a little slack. But, but don't you believe that there were moments uh, when he was out in the desert, when he was stuck in the widow's house and he was saying, oh, dear God, my ministry is over. Where he said, one prophetic declaration. Now it came true, I'm a true prophet, but that was it. 
Nothing else has happened, God. You raised me up to make one prophetic declaration, and now my life is a mess, and the country is a mess. Everything I said came true, but oh God, my ministry is over. Nevertheless, the the reality was, it was in those lonely years of being set on a shelf that God was shaping Elijah for the great ministry to come. The brook Kareth, the back room at the widow's house, Three years in Saudi Arabia where, where Paul is taught the gospel and ministered to by the Holy Spirit. The, the Jordanian wilderness, excuse me, the Jordanian wilderness where John the Baptist listened, listened to the lonely voices blowing on the wind and then he himself became a voice crying out in the wilderness. Thirty years in a carpenter shop knowing that he's the son of God, knowing that, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing that he's anointed for messianic glory, sawing wood and and building boxes and repairing windows in crummy little villages and waiting for God's divine moment to announce His public ministry. But it was in those moments that God shaped Paul and He shaped John the Baptist and He shaped Jesus of Nazareth. When there is no explosion, no fire, no earthquake, no miracle, no dynamic, dramatic experience, no voice of confirmation, no shout from behind the silver-lined clouds, that's when God is dealing with who you are for the ministry that is to come. You know, the truth is, it's no great challenge to preach in a church like this one with great people and people who are hungry for the Lord. It's no great challenge for the pastor of a of a church of thousands to preach to the thousands of people. It's no, it's no great challenge to carry out ministry where everyone sees and everyone acknowledges your efforts. It's, it's no great challenge to serve the Lord in the limelight. The, the challenge there is really just to keep your soul in the middle of it. But it is a challenge to do the small work that nobody else sees except for Jesus and nobody else wants to do. It is a challenge to serve the Lord in the, in the obscure places in the world. It is a challenge to, to fulfill your calling on the backside of the desert when it feels as if you've been forgotten. It is a challenge for that, that home missions pastor to, to get up every Sunday morning and, and make his way down to some little falling down Assembly of God church in the middle of nowhere and to, a, a, where the same 17 people are going to be there that was there the last week and will be there next week until and every week after that until Grandma Jones, Jones dies and then there will be 16. And, and to preach with the gospel with energy and vitality and anointing and be fed by the raven. That's, that's where you need the anointing. There's a, a poem I read many, many years ago. I find it very, very challenging, and I want to close with this. And I think it says a lot of what I'm trying to say in this moment. The poem is called I Wonder by Ruth Harms Calkin. She wrote this. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship, fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the callous feet of a bent and wrinkled old, old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. That takes anointing. God, give us prophets who can be 
fed by ravens who are willing to go into the desert and let him prepare us and, and, then, and then to stand without fear in the houses of kings. God, give us those kinds of men and women of God. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you, Lord God, for the work that you do in those times. And Lord, it's not easy. I think about Moses in the backside of the desert for 40 years, thinking that he has forgotten that he had blown it, that he could never be used by you again. And yet you didn't forget him. It was all part of developing him. I think about Joseph years and as a, as a slave in, in Egypt and then years in the dungeons of Egypt uh, for, for a crime he didn't commit. And yet, God, it was all about preparing him for the ministry, the great ministry you had for him. I think of Elijah at the brook being fed by unclean birds and then being sent to the home of a, of a Gentile widow and you provided for him, but it was all preparing him for what you had to, for him to do and the great work of God you had for him to do in the future. So God, in those moments in our lives where we feel like we're in that desert, I pray God that instead of, instead of just cursing the darkness, instead of, instead of clinging to uh, past blessings and instead of saying uh, and complaining, oh God, this can't be, I, I want this to change. God, I pray that you would work in us to the point, Lord, that we would just simply say, God, I trust you. You brought me here. You'll take care of me here and you'll lead me to the next oasis. You'll lead me to the next place. And God, I pray that you would raise up men and women of character who will walk through that valley, walk through that desert, who will be fed by ravens And you'll raise them up to be the men and women of God who will shake this nation and this world for the cause of Christ. And I thank you for what you're going to do in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.